0: Oh, show me the way to go home, I'm tired and I want to go
1: to bed, I had a little drink about an hour ago, and it's gone right to my head, wherever I may roam, on land or sea
0: or foam, you can always hear me sing a song, show me the way
2: to go home. Hi, this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Leary. What are you drinking and thinking about today?
1: Bonjour! don't know why I said oh, yeah. that in French. Not related.
2: At nope. all. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Another, do it in another language.
1: Um, Shemai, Tim. What's that? That's Welsh, Jesus.
2: Ugh. No, I meant a proper language.
1: <laughs> oh, you bastard.
2: That's better. <laughs> Boom and a <around> <laughs> minute. Um, sorry, back to my question. What, what, what are we doing today?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing most days, but I am drinking. I've yeah. got, um, it's a shandy. Going light this week. I've got a shandy from Carib uh, and it's flavoured with sorrel. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Because I would like to talk about sour drinks.
2: Sour. Are you feeling particularly sour today?
1: Uh, yes. Not <laughs> any more than usual. I just generally right. am more most days, to be honest.
2: Generally being sour. <laughs> okay. Well, for the purposes of sour, I was going to have an amaretto sour. Mm-hmm. Amaretto, whiskey lemon but i had that last night (laughs) just because i couldn't wait and i wanted it um no self-control so i made one of those last night enjoyed it muchly but then woke up this morning and it was sunny and i thought oh i'm gonna go for a little stroll in the sunshine walked down the road um and noticed that there was a new beer shop a new bottle shop in my neighborhood it only opened three weeks ago it's called No Boring Beers.
1: You you did uh, you did really need another bottle shop in your hood. I
2: did, yeah. There are so there are so <laughs> few. Um, <laughs> no, actually, there are a lot of there are lots of breweries, but the number of bottle shops had gone right down because there used to be a couple amongst the breweries that have closed down recently. Uh huh. Um, so you know, it, it is needed. Anyway, um, so I thought oh, I'll, I'll pop in and have a look at uh, No Boring Beers, and they specialise in in local ones mostly, but I saw a couple of very tempting sour beers, and I thought, well, Mm. that's what I'm going to do for this evening instead of the Amaretto Sour. So I'm currently drinking a Raspberry Violet Sour, which is not the strength of a Shandy, it is (laughs) 7.1, and it's by Vault City Brewing, who are a... Scottish brewery that specialise in sours who have just been open a couple of years. Uh so that's who I am drinking and supporting and loving at the moment. Yummy. Yeah. I'm really,
1: really enjoying my shandy. I feel like I'm on holiday. <laughs> mm, it's good.
2: On holiday whilst swaddled in an enormous amount of whatever that is.
1: It's called an oodie. It's like hoodie without the H. Okay. It's just an enormous hoodie. It's like the size of my entire body. It's great.
2: <laughs> you you're giving me strong Santa vibes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, funny enough, this uh I won't give too much away, but I'm going to talk about my drink and Sora later and it is a traditional Christmassy thing in oh. Caribbean. Yeah.
2: Well, okay then. All right, well let's let's crack on then. I want to begin with sour cocktails, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm drinking a sour beer, but I'll get to those later. So, sours, sour cocktails, are considered to be one of the original cocktails, or cocktail families, I should say. There are a lot of different sorts of sours, and it's a big group. So I'm probably not going to go into really big detail on any specific one, but try and give you a sense of the spread of sours. So it's any base spirit with lemon or lime juice, sometimes a sweetener as well, and sometimes egg whites are also included in uh, sour recipes. They are first described as sour cocktails by Jerry Thomas in his 1862 book, which is How to Mix Drinks. So a little bit about Jerry Thomas. He was born in 1830. He was an American bartender who owned and operated saloons in New York City and they consider him the father of American mixology. He opened a saloon below P.T. Barnum's American Museum and that was the the first of his four saloons that he would run in New York City over his lifetime. And then after running this first bar he went on the road for quite a few years so he worked as head bartender in hotels and saloons in Missouri in Illinois in California in South Carolina and Louisiana so he really went around uh, the country but not only that he then also went and toured Europe and he took with him his um, iconic set of solid silver bartels and he was really known for his showmanship as a bartender So he would, you know, he was the one who really created all these elaborate, flashy techniques of mixing cocktails. So juggling bottles and cups and mixers, And he wore flashy jewelry and the um, bar tools and cups that he used were embellished with precious stones and metals and so forth. Um, And he could afford to. He was highly paid as a bartender. I mean, when he worked at the Occidental Hotel in San Francisco, he was earning $100 a week which then made him more highly paid than the vice president of the US. <laughs> so good. Imagine <laughs> any bartender <laughs> earning that amount of money. I mean, it's incredible, but you know, when you put it into the context of things people have never seen any seen before and he puts on this show and I think it's probably no coincidence that he started at P.T. Barnum Circus as well. You probably learned a few tricks of the trade there about how to sell something. So uh he goes around touring, kind of showing off. But I think the thing is, you know, when you go around the world doing this sort of stuff, you also want to learn about local cultures. You want to pick up tips from around the world as well. So his book, How to Mix Drinks, that contains many of the first examples of cocktails and things like sours, I think of it more like Grimm's Fairy Tales. So you know how the brothers Grimm went around you know, Germany Bavaria and they were gathering folk tales and then retelling them in their book. It's not that they created those stories, but they would gathered them and retold them. That's kind of how I see a lot of the way cocktails are recorded, in particular uh, this book as well. We said before, for example, that uh, Tom Collins, which was one of the ones he recorded, or a Gin Fizz, as we might think of it, was also present in Britain as a punch or a gin sour, you know, just with gin and, and lemon or lemonade. And so the roots of this sort of thing are really contested. But he was the first to write down that specific recipe, along with other sours. So that's why you'll often see it kind of cited as the origin. But but do take it with a pinch of salt. Pinch of salt with your sour. <laughs> All right, so here are a few kind of more to explore. The pisco sour is the one I'll start with. Pisco, if you don't know, is an unaged brandy. Pisco uh, itself, the word, it's a port and a valley and a river in Peru. Uh, but Pisco is made both in Peru and Chile. The Peruvian Pisco sour uses, obviously, Peruvian Pisco as the base uh, spirit and adds freshly squeezed lime juice, uh, syrup, ice, egg whites, and Angostura bitters. The Chilean version is similar, but uses, obviously, Chilean pisco. It excludes the bitters and the egg white, and it uses a pica lime. Heard of pica lime?
1: I've heard
2: <laughs> Very similar. So pica <laughs> lime is it's a super sour lime. It's much um, sourer than standard limes. And it comes from a particular Chilean desert. What desert do you think that is? Atacama. <laughs> yes, <laughs> our old friend, the Atacama Desert. <laughs> uh, um, other variants of um, the cocktail that they would they'd use there have pineapple or even things like the coca leaves. So variations thereof, but ultimately some sort of sour addition to the pisco. Um, Drink experts think that the cocktail kind of, as we would know, that that I've just described was invented in the early 1920s in Lima, capital of Peru, by the American bartender Victor Vaughan Morris. Uh, Morris was another US bartender. He left the US in 1903 to come and work in central Peru. And in 1916, he opened Morris's Bar in Lima. And it then became this really popular spot for the Peruvian upper classes and any English-speaking foreigners. But uh, it probably goes back much further than that because grapevines were brought to Peru by the Spanish in the 16th century. So Pisco was their attempt to create something like Spanish brandy. And there are actually records um, related to prohibition um, of pisca and lemon together so pisco sour being sold in Lima's uh, Plaza de Toros de Acho um which is the oldest ball ring in the Americas it well was built pronounced. in 1766 Ooh. well i don't know if it is but uh, well actually that one's all right but later on i've got some portuguese to do and I'm not familiar me um, i've <laughs> got some i've got some
1: afrikaans to try and get
2: my mouth right. <laughs> uh, one day we'll learn all the languages and we'll be fine <laughs> Um, Yeah, but this, so this building, they were obviously kind of like selling it at big events at the ball ring. But yeah, this one's very old for for the Americas, 1766. Um, As I say, both Chile and Peru claim the Pisco Sour as their national drink. If these countries ever have a modern war, it will be over this. (laughs) (laughs) They each say that they have ownership uh, of the cocktail's base spirit, Pisco. Um, and so therefore, you know, the sour has become this uh, off-debated topic of Latin American culture. Uh, Peru celebrates a yearly public holiday in honour of the cocktail during the first Saturday of February. So we just missed our opportunity for that. However, Chile also has a national public holiday <laughs> for Biscuit <laughs> out. And that's in May. So we've got another one coming up.
1: <laughs> Great. Let's celebrate.
2: Mm-hmm. Um going to stay in South America for the next one as well. And we're going to the Caipirinha. And that's Brazil's national cocktail, which is made with cachaça. And cachaça is made from fresh sugar cane juice, fermented and distilled. So although it's distilled from, from sugar, it's different from rum in, mm-hmm. in that way. And that's the sugar cane juice. Uh, and then it'll be mixed with sugar and lime. And they prepare that specifically by mixing the fruit and sugar together first and then adding the spirit. The origin, again, is sort of unknown. One account says um, it came in 1918 in the region of Alentejo in Portugal with a popular recipe um, including lemon, garlic and Mm. honey. Any ideas why Portugal in 1918 might have been saying everyone should consume this drink of lemon, garlic and honey?
1: Were they riddled with vampires?
2: Not quite. (laughs) Is a subject close to home. Pandemic. It was Spanish flu (gasps) at that time, uh, which, as we know, killed a lot of people. And this was just kind of a way of trying to, you know, boost their immunity and so forth. So it became known as this drink there, which, you know, it's perhaps a little bit of a stretch. There's another account that Caipirinha is based on poncha, which is an alcoholic drink from Madeira. Madeira being, you know, a Portuguese territory off the coast Mm of um, Northwest Africa. So the main ingredient there is agredente de cana, which is made from sugarcane. So it's very much the direct predecessor to Uh, Cachaca. Sugarcane production was done for Portugal in Madeira, but obviously it's, you know, it's not a huge island. So they moved the production of the Portuguese sugarcane over to Brazil in the 16th century because they needed all that land to plant on. So, um... The story goes that they, you know, removed any additions of garlic and honey. They added some more sugar to sweeten it, and also added ice, which they weren't using before because of the heat. It was it was hotter, so you know it, it could be a couple of different ways. But the influence is definitely from the growing of sugar cane from Portugal coming into Brazil.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The word caipirinha actually um is. It means um, like someone from the countryside, kind of like a hillbilly, you might say, or a country <laughs> pumpkin. That's quite, that's what it means in Brazilian Portuguese, someone from the countryside.
1: I'm used to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get enough of it for you.
2: <laughs> you sure do. Uh, all right. Um, so I so say not too far away from Kershasa is rum. So the rum sour, we don't really call them rum sours because they're more known as daiquiris, Daiquiri is the closest thing to a rumsau. Daiquiri is the name of a beach and an iron mine near Santiago de Cuba. And it's actually a word of Taino origin. Taino people were the indigenous people of the Caribbean. Um, So that's before, you know, Europeans, it's before slave trade, before all of that, they were the indigenous people. It's, Written in some records that they were considered extinct as a people by the 16th century, uh, but obviously you can find you know traces of their DNA in uh, in people today, particularly in Puerto Rico. If you go to Puerto Rico and look at someone's DNA, ask first. Um, you are <laughs> most likely going to find uh, traces of the uh, indigenous Taínos. So the the daiquiri itself was supposedly, again, invented by an American. Uh, This case, a mining engineer named Jennings Cox, who was in Cuba at the time of the Spanish-American War, which is uh, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. But it's also quite possible that there was a US congressman who was the guy who purchased the Santiago iron mines in 1902, that he then introduced the daiquiri into the clubs in New York in that year. Uh, But they really became much more popular as drinks during World War II when whiskey and vodka were harder to come by and then trade had opened up with Cuba and the Caribbean. So we saw that a lot in the Tiki episode, for example, that they were using rum a lot more in their cocktails. And also, it's kind of the evolution of grog, the the daiquiri, the rum sour. It's a kind of slightly more refined version of that in a way that was perhaps Cuba-based going into the U.S., as opposed to what happened in other areas of the Caribbean and it turned into rum punch there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Then I should definitely mention the whiskey sour. Yum. Again, popular in the US. You find a lot of the records of the sours are, are coming up with the US bartenders and around the end of the 19th century. Um, it's often made with bourbon for that reason rather than, you know, a nice Scottish whiskey. <laughs> um. <Shit. laughs> Well, it is and it isn't. I think that the, the, the flavours match very well. Um, I think it's just that in terms of production, some people see getting a really nice Scottish whiskey as a bit of a waste if you're going to mix it with something. Um, I think there are some that suit others better than those, but, you know, that's that's just a personal matter. Um, anyway, they come in different varieties, you know, with depending on what you want to add in, for example, with egg white that sometimes gets added. You would call that a Boston sour... You can add a few spoons of red wine to float on top, and that's a New York sour.
1: Oh, that sounds good.
2: Yeah, whiskey, red wine, sour, I would give it a go. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the traditional garnish with those ones is uh, an orange slice or a maraschino cherry. And then there's a variant of the whiskey sour as well called the Ward 8, which is bourbon or rye and has both lemon and orange juices and then as the syrup they use grenadine rather than like a sugar syrup that's a war date and then of course you can have you know whiskey and lemon and throw in some amaretto and that would be an amaretto sour which i had last night (laughs) (laughs) this i found gained popularity much later than the other sours it was in the 1970s that it really gained Traction, and that's because they wouldn't really drink amaretto sours in Italy, because you know they're much more purist there. And Italian spirits hadn't gained popularity until the nineteen seventies. We're talking about the time when things like the Godfather a film came out. In fact, a whiskey and amaretto is a Godfather without the addition of of sourness. You could call it a Godfather.
1: I actually watched the Godfather last night. How funny is that? Oh wow! And I that's, didn't even know I was.
2: I was drinking a, a near Godfather, and you were watching it. You go? <laughs> so the, the the rumor around that is that Amaretto was Marlon Brando's favorite drink. Uh, at least that's what DiSarrono say, and that the Godfather <laughs> may have been named after that. But it's all a bit blurry, and when the things are a bit blurry, we suspect it was someone in marketing. Uh, Thanks. More shade. <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't know who created the Amaretto sour. I suspect it was an Italian um, immigrant of some kind, either a bartender or a distributor of Amaretto, who'd created it for the American tastes, added extra sweetness, added some sour, didn't want to own up to it so they wouldn't have to face the shame of their home country for <laughs> doing something weird with Amaretto. And that's <laughs> why we don't know who it is. That's my theory, but I think it's a pretty good one.
1: I think they'd be pretty, pr- pretty proud of themselves now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, should we, really should
1: we try and take ownership if nobody wants it? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, I know I'm looking haggard these days, but um, with lockdown, but I'm not quite sure I could pull off being a illegal drinking age in the 1970s.
1: Uh, I probably could <laughs> <Well, laughs> say I keep getting ID probably not <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, right that's, that's all I've got for you for the sour cocktails for now. I think there are lots of things that I wanted to talk more about, but I thought mm-hmm. that's going to be a future episode. So, yeah um, I think you get the idea. They are pretty ubiquitous ubiquitous in terms of some version of them through history. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to specifically what is the written down recipe for sours, they're nearly all created in the US.
1: Sounds good. Sounds delicious. Now I want to drink everything. Thanks, Tim. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's my turn to uh, drink the things and your turn to talk. So, it's uh, you.
1: Yes, I would like to lower the tone. <laughs> It's not like you. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about Sours with a Z.
2: Oh my God. Do you mean <laughs> that thing from the 90s? Yep. Oh, okay, I'm looking forward to this. I feel like <laughs>
1: everyone has a story about Sours. Like everyone. Oh, do you remember that night? Oh, we were doing the Sours and then all hell broke loose. Um. So I just looked into the history of Sours. Do you know what it's actually quite hard to find a kind of inception date for Sours. There's nothing on the Wikipedia page, nothing on the website. There's yeah. I guess Is that it's because it's probably no one similar, to. yeah. Similar <laughs> to the Amaretto Sour guy. They're like, nobody wants to admit this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very um, probable. So the information I could find. Um so Sours. Um obviously the famous flavour is apple. Apple Sours is the one that everyone used to uh, drink in the 90s in the clubs. But they also have a tropical flavour, a raspberry flavour, a cherry flavour. Um, They have discontinued flavours, blackcurrant, peach and pineapple. I can't say I was ever aware that they existed. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you say, a lot of people just associate them with the 90s. But they have been kind of quietly bubbling away in the background. So in 2008, they did a bit of a rebrand and they uh, introduced this strap line made for mixing. I guess they were just getting pretty fed up with people shotting them with reckless <laughs> abandon.
2: <laughs> I was just going to say, that's like another way of saying, not necessarily made for drinking.
1: Yeah, made for mixing. Please. <laughs> maybe, These...
2: maybe don't drink it, just mix it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But if you go on their website it's 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 quite cute actually. They've got a little section on there for cocktails. But none of them go any further than whack two shots of sours in a glass, add some ice and add some lemonade <laughs> <laughs> Maybe right. maybe put some balls blue and some juice in there if you're feeling fancy, you know, it's yeah. Cocktails in a loose term.
2: I mean, I suppose you've got to think about the experience of the people who are choosing <laughs> this option. They maybe haven't had a lot of practice making cocktails yet. There
1: is so much shade on this podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be tactful. I didn't know how else to put it. <laughs>
1: <sighs> so moving on to 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on Facebook, they put a poll out to try and think of some new flavors. Uh where mango was a favoured flavour that people were asking for, and so the Mango Sours limited edition was born, and it went down so well that it's now a permanent lineup of their products.
2: And how far down the list was Flavour McFlavourface?
1: Oh, if only, huh? <laughs> Sour McSowerson. <laughs> 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 so in 2014, so the, obviously the marketing team, roughly every two years, go, what can we do now? <laughs> so <laughs> in 2014, um, they introduced new packaging and um, glow-in-the-dark ink was used on their bottles, so it stood out more in clubs. So.
2: That's actually pretty clever.
1: I think it's pretty clever. It's like a little beacon for drunk people stood behind the bar like, "Mm, oh, sours, yes. (laughs) That that would totally get me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Then, marketing were on fire because the following year, they got a new flavour, rainbow ice, uh, which is, as they say, a magical mix of raspberry, orange and lime. Okay. It's pretty much what they've already got just thrown together
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say is it
1: is it leftovers <laughs> yeah it's just drip tray stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: i used to make drinks like that when i was a bartender i was like whatever's rarely used but we've got little of in the in the rest in the bottom of the bottle i'll just put them all together and i'll spell it as a se- spell it sell it as a special oh this um is getting to me now <laughs> Sell it as a special (laughs) cocktail at a reduced price just because I wanted to clear, like, the back of the bar and be like, oh, I don't want that anymore.
1: (laughs) It's pretty much what they've done are the sons of it. New rainbow drip tray ice. Um, I'm so
2: sorry, people from sales. I'm being so mean. (laughs) Honestly, I haven't touched a drop probably since I was 17, so I've got no idea (laughs) what it tastes like.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to have a pop at their marketing team because on their website and then on all of the social media channels it's just radio silence because um, this new rainbow ice flavour which is slapped all over the website mm-hmm. actually came out like I say in 2015 so it's six years ago whereas if you go on the Sours website it's like new rainbow ice so they, they've not really done anything for the last six years and what I don't understand is that sometime last year during lockdown um, social media kind of was lit up by everyone getting excited with nostalgia because a new Sours flavour had been spotted in Asda. So there was a Sours strawberry spotted in the wild. But if you go to the Sours website or social media channels, absolutely no mention of it. Can't find huh. it. So Mystery
2: drink. But, but it was actually Sours brand. It wasn't just like yeah. Asda's own version.
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was Sours. Mm-hmm.
2: Very, all very mysterious is mysterious
1: it. what are the marketing team up to
2: and mm. what is it like what is sours does anyone know
1: <laughs> well i did look into that because there were a few like it was quite interesting you know you can get the auto um not autocorrect. um
2: autocomplete
1: autocomplete on google when you type in like anything to do with sours is quite interesting it's usually along the lines of can sours get me drunk how many sours to get drunk how much alcohol in sours um and then a lot of, what is Sours? <laughs>
2: what <laughs>
0: alcohol is Sours?
2: <laughs> this um, is the priority of your average drinker. How much alcohol <laughs> is in it? What is, is it? it?
1: <laughs> so they claim that Sours is a fruit liqueur. Which sure. sounds fancy. <laughs> it's I mean, it's, tray, gen- it's generic isn't it? enough,
2: isn't it? All that means is there is alcohol of like some generic grain distilled alcohol mm-hmm. mixed with fruit that hasn't necessarily been distilled to it it could be added in as a syrup afterwards which i'm not saying that's definitely the way they do it but um it could be
1: <laughs> uh one last thing just a bit mm-hmm. of a side note while i was looking into this um as well as cocktails on the website they had some um what did they call them i can't remember what it was it was like dessert shots or something it was you know fancier shots than just chin in a load of sours. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and it led me to discover that there's something out there called Ball's Yoghurt, which sounds rank.
2: Oh, mate, why?
1: I know. I think it's to create those shots that look, you know, like the split shots so you'd have something sitting on top of the sours. Um, so, it okay like, in the illustrations, you just had, like, the little green bit of sours at the bottom of the shot and then just this horrible, thick, white yogurt on top but right. just I feel weird saying it right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was wondering if it was something like kefir
1: I mean if you're drinking sours you're not going to be putting kefir on it, are you
2: I don't, maybe <laughs> I don't know. Do you know what we're going talk we'll talk about kefir another day
1: <laughs> uh I think we should leave it there okay I'm done
2: before before we get sued for just <laughs> doing a whole podcast slagging off sours even though never had it <laughs> all right I'm going to um bring you then to sour beer because I am actually partaking of it right now listen
1: oh god that sounded like a bird <sighs> in a nest waiting for somebody to regurgitate into its mouth
2: <laughs> thanks <laughs> all right sour beer So obviously a lot of modern brewing is focused on sanitation, you know, good environment and guarding against intrusion of any unwanted flavours and yeasts, etc. But sour beers are not like that. They are made by intentionally allowing wild yeast strains or bacteria into the brew. And traditionally that's done either through the barrels themselves or during the cooling of the wort when it's opened up to the outside air. The most common microbes that um, get used intentionally in sour beer are lactobacillus. It's probably the one you see most often, which, by the way, some people look at that and automatically think that means it's come from milk. Uh, It doesn't. You find it on, um, you know, decaying vegetables and all sorts of things as well. And uh, pediococcus. And then, can we
1: we just stop? Because you've already said yeast, wort, pediococcus. I mean, yeah. (sighs) Right, continue.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Was that that all a bit too much for you? I'm just,
1: yeah, I'm finding it very hard to sit and listen.
2: (laughs) Pediococcus is the one that ferments cabbage, it makes sauerkraut. (laughs) And also, (laughs) yeasts like Britannomyces. Um, oh, is a yeast that particularly adds acidity. Britannomyces, by the way, means British fungus. Mm. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's like that, a proper, like, geezer fungus. Like, oi oi, darling.
2: Yeah. I'm a fungi. Yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I instantly
1: is that your, regretted
2: it. <laughs> is that your impression of an English person? <laughs>
1: Just an English fungus.
2: Oi, oi! <laughs> oi,
1: oi darling, I'm a fanguy.
2: Tune <laughs> you know uh, it. You know it? Um, so those are, you know, kind of the let's introduce some foreign bodies method. And then another would be to um, just add fruit to get that tart flavour by introducing things like citric acid. Or you can just add the citric acid itself directly to the beer without the fruit. Any type of beer can be soured, but because it's about getting the balance right and it's quite tricky, you tend to find that breweries will specialise in it and that they'll have traditional guidelines. So we have particular sort of well-known beers that are known as being soured beers, even though it can be anything. You get me. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to give you, I think, three of them, a little bit more information about them. Mm-hmm. Berliner Weisser will be the first one. So that is a cloudy, sour beer of around 3%. And it's a variation of the wheat beer styles that you get in northern Germany, which dates back to at least the 16th century. And... Um, it's a combination of barley and wheat uh, with the stipulation that the malts have to be kilned at a low temperature. And that's so that it minimises the colour formation, because it wants to you know, uh, be Vicer, it wants to be a white beer. And then the fermentation is with mix of yeast and that lactic acid bacteria. And that's what kind of creates that distinctive flavour for the Berliner Weisser at the height of its production in the 19th century it was like the most popular alcoholic drink you could get in berlin there were 700 breweries producing it and there were 50 alone in berlin there's a kind of well-known uh, comment i guess a critique on berlin of from napoleon that the when his troops were moving in they called it the champagne of the north and it, it, that could have been true in more ways than one, because you know champagne has become very popular, obviously through France, uh, and and moving throughout Europe, it's very likely that brewers would have reused the champagne bottles they got to bottle um, some to bottle sours in general, but something like the Berliner Weisse, because secondary fermentation happens in the bottle, so you can't just use any bottle; it has to be strong enough to be able to uh, withhold that pressure. So they probably reused their champagne bottles, which would be another reason why they'd they'd call it that. And then by the end of the 20th century, um, it had really reduced in popularity. There were only two breweries left in Berlin at that point and a handful in the rest of Germany. The two Berlin breweries are both now owned by the Ertke Group. You know, Dr. Ertke of Let's Make Some Cakes fame? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> delicious
1: I once saw um oh, I can't remember off the top of my head but in um it was like a little corner shop near the train station in Swansea there's a Dr. Kirk little like cake stand and I can't remember the full word but it was definitely the first part of it was spunk uh, and I got really excited because it was essentially like spunk something donuts. That's what I've got to add to
2: that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to respond to that.
1: <laughs> I just, whenever, whenever I hear of Dr. Idker, I think of Spunk Donuts.
2: <laughs> Remind me to never eat anything you bake. <laughs> <laughs> um, Berliner Weisser is usually served in a bowl-shaped glass. One of the reasons why I'm drinking out of my large... Kind of red wine glass. I love those than, glasses, rather than a um, a beer-y one. Just can you um, just for the flavour? Po- po- well.
1: For the podcast, can you give us a ding on your fancy glass?
2: Yes. Hang on. Let me do it. Let me do it with the actual glass. Hmm.
1: So satisfying. Yes.
2: Um, yes. Yeah, so it's normally served in a in a bowl shaped glass, and they often add flavoured syrups to it as well. So raspberry being a, a favourite. Or you might mix it with other drinks, like a pale lager, just to get the balance of sourness that you prefer in your drink. So that's not something we often see in this country, I don't think, but it's a practice there. All right, and the next one is Goza, which is the other beer that I bought today that is currently sitting in the fridge and I will be having after this. (laughs) Uh, The dominant flavours of Goza. Uh, that it has a lemon sourness to it, it has herbal characteristics, and in particular it has a strong saltiness. And that can be added, or it can be the result of the local water sources as well. So Goza beers typically don't have prominent hop bitterness or aromas or anything like that. And they're sort of, I was going to say average, they're moderate alcohol content, 4 to 5%. They use coriander and salt in goza, so that means that it actually doesn't comply with the Reinhotsgebot. If you've heard of that, that was like the the standardised rules around what should go into a beer in Germany and also um, uh, Vatican and so forth. So they said that you could only have water, barley and hops in beer. A yeast, by the way, not listed as an ingredient because it was considered part of the process rather than an ingredient. So, it's, you know, it's not like, anyway. anyway. Um, but Goza was, allows an exemption to this. It was officially recognised on the grounds that it was a regional speciality. Uh, which is good because Goza was actually first brewed in the early 13th century in the town of Gosala which is where it gets its name from. But it did become quite popular as well in Leipzig. And the local breweries that ran there were copying the style so that by the end of the 1800s, it was actually then considered to be local to Leipzig. And there were a lot of Gozer's havens in the city called Gozen Schanken. <laughs> uh, I knew you wanted to laugh at that. I was just going to pause. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So originally, they thought Goza spontaneously fermented. They had a saying about it, the Goza ferments itself without the addition of yeast. Obviously, as we know, there would have been yeast in it, but it would have been wild yeasts rather than added in. They also thought that it, it perhaps was fermenting because of the special properties of the river that they were using. The special properties, as it turned out, were that it's quite salty. So it added that saltiness to the gozer. It wasn't that it has anything that helps it ferment. That would have just been the wild yeasts in the air. But sometime around the 1880s, the brewers do start adding yeast. Uh, So they do a combination of the top fermenting yeasts um, and also lactic acid bacteria. The way it was distributed. So it's still fermenting when they distribute it in the casks to the Schanken. And um, (laughs) they'd be stored in the cellar. And you'll like this as well. The tap bung would be closed, but the shive hole is left open.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So that's like the little hole on the side uh, of the cask that that lets the gas escape so it doesn't explode.
1: I feel like we need to do printable bingo cards for this episode. It's been (laughs) filth.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not done. (laughs) Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh, so they, they let it escape through that but obviously they also uh, then bottle it up once the CO2 starts emerging and they put it in the long necked bottles so you know like champagne bottles uh, but they didn't actually put a cap or cork on it instead they would rely on the plug of yeast that would naturally rise up the neck as the secondary fermentation continues. So it was the floor, it was the plug of plug of yeast that roasted the top that kind of Stop saying it. plug of yeast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's goza, not to be confused with goza
1: Is that goza that's made by geese? Yes. Uh, I knew it was right.
2: Honk if you're thirsty. Um, so now, <laughs> Guza. Guza is a blend of young and old lambics. And there is some debates on where the word Guza originates. One theory is that it comes from Giza, like the old Norse, for gush. Because during times of vigorous fermentation, Guza spews out of the bunghole... Um, <laughs> the oak barrel
1: you're just making it up now aren't you (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh,
2: i just wanted to see how far i could go with this um so that that's that's guza um there's also the idea that it might be named after a street there was a brewery on a guza street but i think um it being named for gushing after vigorous fermentation is funnier, so that's the one I'm going with. Of course, the real question is, what is a lambic? <laughs> no, I told Gosh. you it's a mix of young and old. So here we go. This is the third one, lambics. This, uh, the term lambic is first mentioned, end of the 18th century, as alambique. And then gradually, over the next kind of few decades, the A gets dropped. Um, and... That's, that's how we get lambic, but it probably means because it was alambic that it comes from alembic, which is kind of the, the pot that you would see used in gin distilling or Jennifer at the time as well. Uh, maybe because the beer of this kind is considered to have characteristics of spirits, it's kind of um, a bit clearer, it's yellowy colour, it's got above average alcohol content. Maybe that's where it comes from, it's a theory um but the style of it is older than that record of the name we have it was brewed in the southwest um southwest of brussels in, in belgium since the 13th century so kind of similar time period to goza and again fermented through exposure to wild yeasts and bacteria that would be native to the zen valley and that's what gives it the distinctive flavor this kind of a, a vinous, cidery kind of tart aftertaste. So, what gives sours their unique flavour is kind of what's in the air, rather than something like you know terroir, like the sunshine or what's what's going at the ground or whatever. In fact, they they looked at this and they found over eighty microorganisms are in a typical lambic beer. So, when you have one, you're kind of drinking a whole ecosystem. <laughs> 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 Which is a weird thought. Uh, this kind of process is only possible between October and May, um, typically, because in summer months it's it's not great for the organisms. They prefer it cooler. It will spoil the beer, and unfortunately, climate change means that we're getting shorter and shorter periods for that. In the early 1900s, brewers would get 165 days a year on average, and that's down to 140. So, less lambics for everyone. Hops are added to the lambics because they are antibacterial. They have antibacterial properties, which means that there's less chance that they will spoil from the unhelpful bacteria. But what a lot of modern breweries do is they will use the dry aged hops. So that instead of getting that sort of herbal bitterness that you might expect from a hopped beer, instead it tastes kind of more cheesy, like nutritional yeast or something like that. Um, Lambics can only be produced in that region, near Brussels, because of that region's microflora. Mm -hmm. So they've said, you know, this is what makes the flavour of it, it can only be made here. And that means that the number of producers has gone way down as well. So it was kind of more than 300 in 1900, and uh, it's it's just gone down and down after that. A lot of the ones you find now, the, the kind of contemporary lambics in Belgium, to appeal... To you know, amass flavors. We'll add a lot of fruit flavors to it. So my favourite one, as you kind of mentioned in uh, in the sours, would be cherry. <laughs> so creek. You get the secondary fermentation of sour cherries into the bottle, and that will give you a nice creek. Which I think probably, at least in this country, I've seen people will be more familiar with that version of the lambic than any others. Um, in terms of kind of like who is making them now, uh, Wild Beer Co. Is you know it's making them down in um, kind of Bristol Way, Glastonbury Way. But the thing is, with these kinds of beers, it does take time. Like they have to be aged for a few years, and it's you know not only is it risky, it's expensive undertaking. So these breweries obviously have to keep making their their pale ales and their lagers and whatever in the meantime, so they can have an income. But there are a lot of people starting to experiment again with what they can do with various wild yeasts. So when you see them, grab them, because they are not that common.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't see them all that often. We were chatting before we started recording, actually, about um, sours. And it's hard to find them in just supermarkets. Um, It's very rare you see them in, like, Tesco, Sainsbury's, just like that. And I'm not as lucky as you to have so many bottle shops on my doorstep. So uh, it's very rare I get a tasty sour.
2: Hmm. Yeah, you really have to kind of send away from them now, don't you?
1: Mhm. And it's one of those things as well, it's... I find them a bit hit or miss. I guess they are an acquired taste, but sometimes I've had sours that I really struggle to drink.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to get on to taste uh, <laughs> shortly, actually, so um, I'll, I'll hand back to you for anything else before we get there.
1: Okay. Um, so I looked into just traditional sour drinks around the world. Um, Because I knew we'd be talking about the kind of beers and the cocktails and the things that we're quite used to here. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to look at how other people do it around the world. Not necessarily all alcoholic, but um, I just dug into the world of natural, traditional, sour-flavoured things. Uh, So first up is obviously sorrel, which I'm drinking now. Um, I don't know how much you know about sorrel. Are you familiar with it?
2: Yeah, I've, I've cooked with it mm. before. Uh, last year was last time I cooked with it, in fact. I got it as, um, you know, I get like a unwanted vegetables box thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not just kind of things that supermarkets can't sell. Sometimes it's stuff that restaurant orders got cancelled or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: occasionally you end up with a really premium ingredient ingredient thrown in with your rude-looking parsnips. Yeah. And I remember last year <laughs> getting a bunch of sorrel and it was delicious.
1: Was it fresh or dried because you can no, get it was fresh.
2: Mm, nice.
1: yes, fresh so sorrel drink um so it's known as a variety of different names depending on where you are in the world um so it's known as roselle juice, Bisap, wonjo, sobo, and Zobo, just to name a few um so sorrel drink it's known commonly as in the Caribbean Because... Um, Sorrel is uh, made from the flowers of the Rizal plant, which is a variety of hibiscus. And the Jamaican word for hibiscus is sorrel. Uh, So more often than not in the Caribbean, it's referred to as a sorrel drink. Um, But it's also found in Africa, Mexico, all over. So it's got a ton of different names. So the sorrel flowers have a distinct sharp and sour taste. And that's due to the um, oxalic acid that's found in them. Um, For that reason, often uh, sorrel drinks are not recommended in abundance for children, pregnant women. Uh, Too much oxalic acid is not good for those. Uh, But it does have a variety of medicinal uses. So it's used for reducing sudden and ongoing pain, uh, swelling um, of the nasal passages uh, in particular. So if you're feeling a bit run down and like you've got a cold coming, quite often people have a sorrel drink. Uh, it's also known to treat bacterial infections along with conventional medicines um, so technically, a sorrel drink is an if in an infusion really um the sorrel is steeped like you would tea really, and it's traditionally served cold um now, depending, again, depending on where you are in the world, what you add to it will differ. I'm going to talk about the Caribbean stuff because that's the stuff that I drink a lot. So, yeah, depending where you are in the world, you'll add different things to it. In the Caribbean, um, for example, the drink I have here, the Shandy, it is pretty much just a Shandy with some sorrel flavour in, added in. So it's a bit of a bastardisation, really, of a sorrel drink. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But this one was brewed in Trinidad. But traditionally, a sorrel drink is kind of like a non-alcoholic mulled wine from what I've had in the Caribbean. So they'll steep the sorrel flowers in the water. They'll add different spices and things into it. So without the spices, it generally just tastes a bit grapey, kind of like cranberry juice, but a lot earthier like red wine. It's really, really tasty. Um, but as I mentioned, it's quite traditionally brought out in kind of Christmas, New Year celebrations in the Caribbean where they add the traditional kind of mulled spices to it that we know from mulled wine uh, and also some rum. Uh, but that's all served cold. They're not uh, they're not heating it up. Um, they're sipping that on the beach with some ice. It's very tasty.
2: Very nice. It's made mm. me want some more sorrel now. I it's do kind love of it. How describe it. The, you get the leaves of it. You kind of treat it a bit like spinach, mm-hmm. I suppose. You would have it in that way, but it's got a lemony flavour. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's like if you're the kind of person who likes to wilt spinach and have it that way and then put some lemon over for flavour, it basically tastes like that.
1: I'm really enjoying this, Sorrel, because I've only really had it when I'm on holiday in the Caribbean and it's taking me back. It's good. <laughs> um, so... We are also going to talk about uh, tamarindo, which is a drink you won't be surprised to hear is made of tamarind. Mm. (laughs) Um, So this is a non-alcoholic beverage, uh, and it's very simple. It's made of tamarind, sugar, and water. Simple as. So the tamarind plant originates in Africa. Uh, I may add that it was utilised as a shade tree. (laughs) So it was important to throw that in. <laughs>
2: it's, very, it's very appropriate for this episode. If ever we needed a shade tree, it was today.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, it's origin- originated in Africa, but it has since been widely distributed on a global scale. Uh, but the tamarind plant produces fruit pods containing pop and seeds, which offer a flavour that ranges from sour to sweet. So tamarindo um, is a sour-sweet beverage, depending on how much sugar you like to use. Um, A lot of people like to make it at home because it's just easy, three ingredients. Uh, You shell the pods, add them to boiling water, soak them for 45 minutes to get the seeds out. Once the seeds are out, you leave the pulp, strain it through a sieve, blend that with water and sugar, and serve it over ice. Um, Some people like to skip the arduous task of boiling water and soaking them for 45 minutes and straining and bloody blah you can just buy tinned tamarind pulp and do it that way and save yourself a bit of time um tamarindo has also been picked up by the likes of nestle and made into a soft drink that's just sold on a mass scale globally as well uh, but there also have been some kind of other drinks inspired by tamarindo. Um, so we're going to stay in Africa. Um, there's a tamarind fruit drink popular in northern Ghana, which is named Poha Beer. So it's pretty much the tamarindo, so tamarind water and sugar. But they add spices like ginger and peppercorn, which sound very tasty to me. Mm. Uh, and it sounds like it's a bit more of an arduous task as well. Uh, seven stages are included to create poor Beer. Threshing, which is removing the outer covering of the fruit. Fermenting, moulding, so they mould the pulp into balls before they soak it, which is number four. Number five, mash. Number six, decant. And number seven, spice. So, seven pretty long stages for something that's not alcoholic. <laughs> But it does sound <laughs> delicious, and has lots I mean, of health benefits.
2: You know, I uh, I use tamarind all the time. I've never once made a drink with it, so now <laughs> I will have to. I'm gonna have to put it on my list of things to do in the next week. Is actually make some tamarindo. Mm. I um I I don't do all the the boiling and everything. Uh, I buy it as a like a block, so it's been pulped already and squished into a block, yeah. and then you just break a little bit off and put it in um boiling water to soften it up, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, strain, s- sieve it through so you don't get any of the shell bits or whatever. I use that a lot in cooking. I um, make, mm-hmm. like, dal or whatever. Yeah. But if you go to, like, I think everyone's got a, hopefully, a supermarket somewhere nearby that does, uh, is not like a, <laughs> I don't mean like a big supermarket, I mean, like, does Turkish and... Um, North African and Greek and Polish and whatever. If you go into one of those, they'll usually have like a big block of, tar- and it's much cheaper than mm-hmm. going through the supermarket and getting a little pot of whatever. I always I get try so to much buy, good stuff from those. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's one thing I always try and buy when I go there, and it's the tamarind balls, which is um, they're mixed with this tamarind pot mixed with a bunch of other spices but coated in sugar as well, and it mm. offers that really great sour sweet. Oh, so good that's of a very course. acquired taste again but i love it um so another drink that's been obviously inspired by tamarindo uh so we're going over to india and it's ka amlana so this is a drink which is described as tangy refreshing and a digestive so it's often st- served with a main course out there and that is made with tamarind pulp sugar pepper, black salt, cumin, cardamom, and mint. Um, so as well as being served with like main courses and meals, a lot of people, from what I was reading, it's something that they just used to enjoy with their, their parents or their grandparents. It sounds like it was a bit of a sweet kind of a treat. There's a lot of sugar in it. So mm. when I was researching this, there were a lot of recipes on it online where people were saying, you know, it's nostalgic. I haven't had it for so long. And I finally found this recipe online and it's taken me straight back to my childhood Um, and a lot of the recipes that I found have swapped out sugar for jaggery um, Mm -hmm. because they just don't want to use completely refined crazy amounts of sugar in it so it did sound really nice like pepper black salt cumin cardamom that is such a good mix and I might try and make this as well so we're going to stay in India for the only slightly sordid sounding drink that I have, which is cockham sherbet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so cockham is a fruit belonging to the same family as mangosteen, and it's native to the southern states of India, which is why they quite proudly uh, say that cockham sherbet, or other- otherwise known as cockham juice, uh, it's, it's native to them. You can't find it anywhere else. Uh, so the kokum fruit is a dark purple colour, so very similar to sorrel, very similar to hibiscus, um, dark purple fruit, and it's very popular in Goa in the summer. So it's a combo of again cumin, cardamom, black pepper, and sugar, and it evens out the sourness of the kokum fruit. Um, health benefits: it's anti-inflammatory, antifungal, antioxidant. Uh, it improves your digestion. And it reduces body heat. Now, I think that is the key thing from what I heard, because it sounds very similar to the the last drink up until that point. Um, but people swear by it if you have like heat stroke or dehydration, or you're just generally very hot in the summer. It's it's something that they drink a lot when they're very very warm.
2: Hmm. So it's a bit like a natural paracetamol or something. Yeah.
1: And then the last one, back to Africa. Because I felt like I'd been talking about health drinks and benefits and non-alcoholic things for too long, I did find a beer in Africa. Oh, so it's, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually Googled the pronunciation as well, just to make sure I wasn't going to offend people. <laughs> no, it's spelt U-M-Q-O-M-B-O-T-H-I, but it's pronounced Mukomboti, I think.
2: Pretty good. Mukomboti. Convince me. <laughs>
1: Uh, So it's commonly found in South Africa. It's also sometimes known as Zulu beer. Uh, It's a traditional beer made from maize, maize salt, sorghum malt, water, and wild native yeasts to produce the alcohol. It's extremely rich in vitamin B and has a distinctive sour smell from the sorghum malt. It's quite low um, with regards to alcohol content. It's about 3-4%. And it's got an opaque tan colour and a thick gritty consistency from the maze Um, it sounds like it's um, commonly used in quite formal celebrations and formal events Uh, so the key kind of usage I could find was it's used to celebrate the homecoming of young men after Ulwaluko I think is how you pronounce it so Ulwaluko is um, a religious ceremony where males are circumcised and the the beer is used to kind of welcome and celebrate their path into adulthood. But it's also commonly used in weddings, funerals, and in Bezos, which are traditional meetings. So it just sounds like if you've got any kind of gathering, take the maize beer, get involved.
2: Absolutely. I think I, I like when there's always a celebration drink in a culture, like for whatever... It's happening. Yeah. This is our go-to drink. We go for that one. Yeah. Like I, th- I feel it's, it's part of, um I think, doing in previous episodes when we saw champagne suddenly arrive and take dominance because of the upper classes. Mm-hmm. After learning that, it made me a bit, be a bit sad about going to champagne for every celebration. And I was like, no, we should <laughs> have more regional variations on what we go to to celebrate.
1: I think my net kind of it's not even regional. Well, it is and it isn't. Malt wine is like my favourite. I just love it when it gets a bit darker. You know me, I get carried away. It's just like when the clocks go in October, it's getting darker and it's a bit cold. I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for mulled wine. <laughs> I'm not waiting till Christmas. I'm ready for you're, mulled wine.
2: <laughs> you've already told, when we did the episode, you told me that you drink mulled stuff in the summer as well. You will drink it all year round. We all know this. <laughs> I love it. So um, speaking of winter spices, I have just grabbed uh, a second beverage. So, uh, unusually for this podcast, I'm going to tell you about another one, which is that I've got a brew by Numbers Gosa uh, which <laughs> is good because I just talked about it. Brew by Numbers is literally down the road from me. So this is nice and local. And, uh, I think I've got the tail end of one of their lines because it's winter fruits. So mm. I thought I'd better drink it before we go too deep into spring.
1: <laughs> Do you want me to start singing some Christmas songs? <sighs>
2: I'd like to hear some Christmas songs, but whether I want them from you is <laughs> another matter. <laughs>
1: More shade.
2: Okay, so we almost got into that conversation about what are your, what are your taste preferences mm. uh, when it comes to sour and so forth. So when you think about, you know, sour, bitter, sweet, uh, salty, umami, spicy, all that sort of stuff. Do you have a preference? Do you have one that comes out on top for you?
1: Yeah, I like it when it's quite, like, taut and kind of hurts my cheeks a little bit at the side. Like, I like that kind of sour. I don't... I I struggle with the ones... I don't know how to describe the flavour properly, but they're the ones that feel like... They're still fermented in my mouth. <laughs> I can't <laughs> <Yeah>. do those. <laughs>
2: but yeah, the wild bacteria sounds um, yeah. but how about like in general? I mean, do you prefer salty? Do you prefer sweet?
1: Um, I prefer salty that I'm more umami side of things than sweet.
2: Right. See, when uh kind of thinking about taste preferences and stuff, for me I put sour right up there. I love sour things. I mm-hmm. love sour drinks. I consume vast amounts of vinegar <laughs> on, on all sorts of things. I love all the, like, sour fermented foods. Um, I will happily eat a lemon. <laughs> all of that. Love it. For me, actually, sweet is way down the list. I really don't. Although I will enjoy, like, you know, banging desserts and donuts and things, actually, the flavor of sweet is not my favorite thing at all. Mm-hmm. Um. There are some interesting and scientifically dubious articles that float around not only the internet, but also like journals of psychology, when you try to look up why do people have different preferences for taste. There seems to be no real consensus or evidence on this, but psychologists are having a field day with it at the moment, from what I can see. (laughs) Because, you know, as I said at at the beginning of the episode, like, are you feeling sour today? You know, are you (laughs) being a salty bish? Are you going to be sweet to me? All that kind of stuff. Like, we do associate taste with personality traits Mm -hmm. and behaviours. And I think it's far too tempting, both for lexicographers and also for psychologists, to not pay attention to that. And so there are all these sorts of studies that are based on... uh, behaviour traits, trait theory, that try to look into this. So with sour, for example, the results would say that people who prefer sour taste are more conscientious. Um, they tend to do more planning, but are open-minded as eaters. They often go hand-in-hand hand with bitter in terms of the personality trait <laughs> tests. In fact, in some cultures, sour and bitter are the same thing. Um bitter famously are supposed to be more antisocial. Depending on how soft softly you read these reports, some people say kind of they care less about what others think. Other people call them psychopaths. <laughs> and you'll see this pop up every now and then in like rag newspapers where they go if you like coffee, it makes you a psychopath. That kind of thing. But there's it what that is essentially based on is This idea of um, benign masochism. So the idea that some people actively seek out experiences that might initially seem unpleasant, but actually have no real damaging effect to you. And that relief you get afterwards is a demonstration of mind over body. So things like watching horror movies, going on roller coasters you know, that kind of thing, or tasting something very bitter or sour, there's a feeling that you have overcome your body's instincts in that manner, and it gives you a little bit of an adrenaline rush. That's what that's largely based on. Um, There are some other studies as well. uh, I say one of the more convincing ones is people's reaction to sweet. That actually people who do consume sweet things are sweeter. They are more empathetic. They did... Test. I think they used chocolate as a base, where people who had recently eaten chocolate were shown to be more charitable than people who hadn't. So there's this is the idea that actually, if you've recently consumed sugar, you're going to be more empathetic to the needs of others, and that has been kind of proven a couple of times in a test. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like spices, if you like hot things, you're more of a risk taker, apparently, and then salt is an interesting one apparently people who like the taste of salt uh, a lot like fast rewards <laughs> they okay. like fast satisfaction and they're more competitive apparently they seek uh, they seek power and competition and also kind of fast satisfaction any reflections on those
1: yeah it kind of makes sense actually like i when I think of certain people, like, overly, like, soft and yeah, I agree. It's kind of worrying that, like, my go to snack in the evenings <laughs> is just pickles out the jar. <laughs> 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 so I'm sitting there eating pickled onions, and my husband's sitting there eating chocolate. I should be worried. <laughs>
2: hey, I think that just means you've got to balance your personality traits in your marriage.
1: Yeah, maybe I should stop being so horrible to him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, okay, so with these things, as I say, there are, I think, the the tests that are replicable and point to specific behaviours, like, for example, people giving more to charity if they've just eaten something sweet. That, okay, I buy, and I think there would be interesting kind of reasons behind that. I think you have to be really careful with anything that um, talks about personality traits rather than specific behaviours, because Mm -hmm. that's essentially a horoscope. (laughs) So they can say a bunch of things, and you will always find something to associate yourself with in that context. Mm -hmm. That's all based on things like trait theory, which, you know, came out of um, Jung's work and was not really, and then therefore out of Freud's and wasn't really based on anything Scientific in particular. So I say I, I'm dubious about all of those <laughs> those kinds of studies. However, mm-hmm. it is quite good fun to think about your own tastes and behaviours you exhibit and, you know, look around for these sorts of studies as and when they pop up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love sour things and I am not organised and I'm not great at planning, so.
2: <laughs> well, quite. There goes quite. It's like a horoscope, isn't it? You, <laughs> tend to th- you tend to see the things that confirm your biases rather than go against it. Uh, cognitive dissonance uh, there is a study as well I came across that says that um, serotonin is probably um, the neurotransmitter that's directly responsible for us receiving the sour taste it's yes. been said before actually that sourness is more like a feeling than a taste because it's so instantly reactive mm-hmm. um, it happens so quickly rather than it's something like you you mull over The serotonin association, again, is something that a lot of publications will want to pick up on because it's a neurotransmitter that's so essential for mood, um, you know, mood stabilization and things like that. I mean, the truth is serotonin is throughout the body and does lots of different things. so It's not surprising that it it, it transmits any number of things. But there then have been a lot of people therefore thinking about how sour tastes might be related to mood uh, and things like that. One of the things is the observation of, like you said, um, when things kind of get you at the side of the jaw, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but then when you have something really sour, like your mouth puckers, and you give an expression which is very similar to that of disgust. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, because we salivate a lot to neutralize the acid we've just taken in, it also makes us think that we want more. So we're sort of simultaneously doing this disgust and also I want a bit more reaction in our body, which is a little bit confusing. Um, and so within that there's been this kind of idea of well, do we kind of keep going back to that to experience you know just sort of the the pain? Of this, the disgust or the, the empathy of wanting to feel disgust, or is it the relief that it's not? And people have been getting very confused about this. It's getting uh, so deep, I love it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, interestingly, studies have shown our, our tastes collectively across different cultures are getting increasingly sour. So we are preferring more and more sour tastes. And one of the theories is that we're looking for more stimuli. So we're so bombarded and overexposed with stimulus in our everyday lives, that in our tastes, we're sinking more and more to interest us, otherwise everything is starting to seem more and more bland. Mm. So that's one theory. Another is this empathy idea that because we're, we're more used to being disgusted by seeing injustices in the world, and they did, they did a, sort of a slight experiment on this, that the sourness recreates that feeling that we see in life of being disgusted by seeing injustices happening. And so therefore we're trying to get some empathy through our food for what we're feeling kind of out, outside in life. It's, it's a bit complicated and a bit convoluted. I think all this sort of stuff is people thinking through it <laughs> and trying to figure out what tests can we do is any of this going to be true? But I think it's interesting that we're going down this path and we don't fully understand it yet.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Sour sweets, I discovered as an example, got really sour during sort of the 1950s in the US. So there had had been sourness in sweets prior to that because um, the acid that they would add to the sweets would sort of um, stabilize the sugar. So it, it would turn it, from um, sucrose that would crystallize into glucose or fructose, which which wouldn't crystallize and would make it more manageable as sweets, but it retains just a little bit of sourness. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the nineteen fifties, all of a sudden you get the launching of super sour sweets that are actually <laughs> painful. And I think there's two <laughs> things that contribute to this. One is the commercialization of Halloween. Halloween starts getting really commercialized around that point, and sweets that you know were given as part of that start to um, embrace this idea of trick-or-treat. So it might be a sweet treat, it might be something that slightly disgusts you. And that's kind of part of the the selling point of that. The other is that actually the very first Super Sour Sweet was created and named after the first atomic test. It was like an atomic blast type sweet. Mm -hmm. So there's another kind of like horror and disgust element to, you see this thing that happened, taste that horrific experience oh in the form of this super sour sweet. And now we have even sourer <laughs> sweets than that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's I can be dubious about the actual links and I've told a very muddled story, but I think there's something to be said for people seeking out really sour tastes as a way to understand some of the things they've seen because it's just another way to feel.
1: Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need therapy
2: now. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need therapy. Just stay for another drink.
1: <laughs> Just have another sour beer.
2: And thus ends my talk on psychology. Just have a drink, mate. You all all right? <laughs> this is why, despite reading all these psychological texts, I'm not a therapist. <laughs>
0: That's why you
1: like sour food things. You're not empathetic oh. at all.
2: <laughs> well, apparently, according to my tastes, I'm not. <laughs> uh, anything else to add?
1: No, I think I'm going to go and think about my life choices and snacks.
2: <laughs> I, think, I think you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to drop some acid into our glasses and see where the night takes us. Cheers, everybody.
0: Ever I may roll, or land or sea or you can always hear me sing in
2: the song. show me the
1: way to go
2: <laughs> Give me a hoedown.
1: down. <laughs> can't do it. I, can't. I need a louder one.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, Milo didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs>